context is that at the end of the day, if you want the kingdom outcome in your life, if you want to have a life that is blessed and you want to have a life that is prosperous and you want to have a life that is abundant, you actually do have to follow kingdom principles. And the kingdom principles never agree with world principles. You will find that as you go through your Christian life, that when the world says to you, if you want to have lots of money, you just got to hoard it all. And then you come to the kingdom of God and he says, no, if you want lots of money, you got to give it away. Yeah? The kingdom of God works like that all the time. So what I wanted to talk to you about is if you wanted to have a blessed life, there's a scripture that's very clear and says, if you do this, then you will have a blessed life. It's something that's alien again to what the world tells us, because the world tells us that we not only need to hoard our money, we need to hoard our time. But the kingdom of God does not say that. The kingdom of God says we not only give of our money, but we also give of our time. Does that make sense? All right, let's turn to this really awesome scripture, and it's found in John chapter 13, and it's going to be from verses 1 to 17. I really wanted to, I, I did, I actually spent time pulling this whole scriptures apart and, and repacking it step by step, and then I realized I have 30 minutes. So I won't be able to, to do the full thing. We're just going to look at a couple of things, but I just wanted to read the scripture so you can get the context of what we're talking about. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs to only wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, Do you not know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for, I, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I love that last verse, verse 17. It's an amazing verse, and it's very, very clear. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You see, here Jesus is identifying very clearly the difference between doing something and knowing something. Quite often we know something and we fail to do something. This is one of those kingdom principles where it is not enough to actually know it. You actually have to do it. This is where knowledge um, comes, becomes in direct contrast with application. You can know the Bible, 
But if you don't do the Bible, it's actually not going to help you a lot. So let's just pray. Father, I just ask that this morning that you would just open our ears to hear your spirit. God, that it wouldn't be so much the words that I'm saying, but God, it would be your spirit in behind. God, that their, their spirit would come alive and they would begin to testify that, yes, this is what God is saying. God, that they'll be able to lay a hold of this principle and to apply it to their life in a practical way. So that, God, that they can walk forth in a life that is blessed. I thank you, God, that you go before me and you've already prepared their hearts to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've kind of had an odd couple of weeks. I um, have been thinking about a few things that, that kind of struck me as a bit odd up until yesterday, to be totally honest, about why I've been having a few conversations and a few thoughts. In a couple of weeks' time, in the beginning of August, is the anniversary of the death of Craig's brother. And for those of you who don't know, Craig's brother passed away, it'll be seven years and he passed away. He was an instructor. In fact, if you Google it, you can Google it and you'll, find, it's, you'll see all the news articles. Uh, he was an instructor at Topek, and Topek is um, the Taranaki Outdoor Pursuit Centre. And he was the instructor who was there when, and he drowned, as well as three of the students. They were climbing around uh, Paratutu Rock, and they got three quarters of the way around the rock, and the winds were up, and the, the weather was horrendous, and they decided it was actually they needed to get off the rock as fast as they could. They decided because they'd already gone around most of the way, it was actually going to be faster to get off the rock if they kept going than going back the other way. So unfortunately, as what happens when you've got teenagers, they didn't listen to all the safety instructions. And they, There's this flat part, and they, you're actually not allowed to climb the rock anymore, but there's this flat part, and they had unhooked themselves, and then they have to hook themselves onto the next section. But a couple of the boys decided to unhook themselves and not rehook themselves back on. Instead, they were doing handstands on the flat of the rock. The waves came up, washed them off. Three boys went into the, into the water. Bryce unhooks himself, jumps in, gets one of them out, and then goes back in for the other two. Those three, Bryce and the two boys, lost their lives. The body of Bryce and one of the other boys was never found. And I was kind of thinking about just the fact that it's the anniversary of his death, but what I was actually thinking about was our last moment with him. If you've been in our church long enough, um, you would have heard stories that Craig's told. His relationship with his brother was kind of contentious. It, it wasn't a great relationship, you know. Um, but for some unknown reason, the January before he passed away, which was the last time we saw him, you know, with dying in the August, he had rung us and said, I'm driving through with the kids. We're going to Whangarei. Can we call in and see you? Which you have to understand was odd. They drove to Whangarei all the time, they never did this. So we're like, oh, yep, that's fine. So they came, and we actually had a great hour and a half. We had an awesome conversation with them. It was like the last 10 years of all this issues and stuff that had been going on between the two brothers had disappeared. And we, we enjoyed the time. The kids had a great time together. It was really, really awesome. And I think it's, it's kind of just set in my memory and about how great that time was and the different conversations that we had. And you could feel that, that kind of healing happening. I had a conversation uh, during the school holidays with my mom. Uh, I'd actually had a previous conversation with someone and, and, and we got into a bit of a discussion about assisted suicide. And they had said to me, you cannot, 
you know, you cannot be for assisted, you have to be for assisted suicide because, you, you know, you don't understand. You've never watched a loved one die. But I knew my mum had. So I wanted to talk to her about it because I know where I stand as a Christian. No, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not for assisted suicide at all. But I wanted to have a conversation with my mum because she had been through this. So I said to her, because her, her mother died when I was a child. I was very young. I don't even think I was at school. So I said to her, how was that? What was that like? And because she had, it was a painful way to go. And so we had this conversation. And then she starts telling me um, about the conversation she had with her two brothers. Now, I'm talking about a conversation that happened almost 40 years ago. And she could remember it in detail. So I started thinking about it. And then yesterday I was like, that's kind of interesting. What it actually showed me is that Before someone dies, or when someone dies, we remember those last moments with them so much more than other moments. I saw a post that Debbie Piper put on, and she talks about how, because she was a member of our church, and about Eli passing, and she remembers those moments she had with him. And so it started me thinking about this particular passage of Scripture. And why is this particular passage of Scripture so important? And what was it about it that these guys remembered most of this passage of Scripture? And I came to the realization, and if you're you're into into kids' movies and you know the movie Shrek, Shrek always says that he's like an onion, and the Bible is like an onion. All the mums know what I'm talking about. And there are layers. So you can look at the story in the Bible, and you can see what it says, and you can just take it at face value. But like an onion, there are layers to what the Word of God says. And so I began thinking about the layers in the story of this passage. And one of the things that you have to understand, and the reason why I think it's so important and why it's been sort of written down, because if you look, it actually appears in the other Gospels as well, is that in close to 24 hours of this story taking place, Jesus is hanging on the cross. You see, this was the beginning of the end for Jesus. This was his last few precious hours that he had to be with his disciples, to be with these guys that he spent three years of his life pouring into. Now, the guys, the disciples at the time did not know that, but they they remembered it after he had gone because that was the last moments he spent with him. Does that make sense? Does anyone actually understand where I'm coming from about remembering those last moments? What's really interesting about this passage is that the cross itself is never actually specifically mentioned at all in this passage. But it casts a shadow over it. We, of course, can read it from the perspective of we know that Jesus is about to go to the cross. So every part of it takes on a new layer. It takes on a new meaning. But the disciples at that time did not have that knowledge. They did not know that. But Jesus knew. He knew what was going to happen. He knew exactly where he was going, and he knew that this was his last moment, and he knew that whatever he said and whatever he did in this last moment, the disciples were going to play over and over in their head. They were going to recall every sentence he said. They were going to remember every action he took. They were going to remember everything that they did because it was the last time that they were with him. What John doesn't tell us in this passage, but if you look back into the Gospel of Luke, and Luke tells us, is that the disciples at this particular point in time were having a heated discussion. And the reason why they were having this heated discussion is that they were um, arguing over who was the greatest. 
Who was the best of them? Who was the one who was the most faithful to Jesus? There was a little bit of jealousy going on. There was a little bit of ego happening. There was all these conversations around, um, like, well, in actual fact, you know, Peter and I, we went up and we met uh, Elijah and we met um, Moses and you guys weren't there. So I think that means we're better. And then you would have somebody else saying, well, actually, you know, after you guys all went to sleep, Jesus and I, we had this big, long conversation. So I actually think, you know, I'm more important than you guys are. And then you would have somebody else saying, yeah, but, you know, Jesus entrusted me to do this, and you guys weren't there to do that. And they would have had this whole conversation going. And they would have had this whole shifting and trying to work out the hierarchy of who was the most important, who was the most faithful, who was Jesus' favorite. And eventually, they actually just got really upset with each other because that's what happens. Have you ever had those moments where you walked into a room and you can feel the tension? Yeah? You walk in and you're like, I just walked in on something. I have no idea what it is. But you can feel that tension. You can feel that anger. You can feel that angst in the air. And sometimes people won't care and they'll just keep the argument going. But other times, they will care and and, and you're left kind of semi in the dark. But you know something's gone down and you've just walked right into it. That is what Jesus had walked in on. See, it was customary in that time for the lowest servant of the house to wash the feet of any of the guests that arrived. So if you, particularly in a formal thing, if you were having a dinner, everybody would, would arrive, and the lowest servant, so the person who was the least ranked person, would actually have to wash the feet of everybody who arrived. Now, for some reason, this didn't happen when Jesus and the disciples turned up to this room. Now, the guy who owned it, he set it up for them. There would have, he would have had, because it was customary, it was what they had to do, there would have been a basin of water and a towel. And every single person, every time they walked in, they would just walk all past it. And I guess I'm thinking about this, like, if they walked in, and because this is just the way, way I kind of think things through, is like, they would have walked in, they would have seen the basin, they would have known what it was for, and then they would have done this. I am not the lowest ranked person, I'm not the lowest ranked disciple, I'm not washing anybody's feet. Maybe somebody else could do it. You know what, Peter has an anger problem. So if anybody should be washing anybody's feet, it should be Peter, because he loses his temper all the time. And it's true, if you read through the Gospels, Peter was always losing his temper. Um, but maybe, in, real, in all honesty, uh, maybe it should be one of those disciples that people don't know the name of, you know, like Bartholomew. Because you know what, there isn't a Gospel of Bartholomew, so most people don't actually, if you say to somebody, name the 12 disciples, they can't name Bartholomew. Or maybe, maybe Thomas, Thomas is always full of doubt. So if he doesn't actually believe who Jesus is, maybe he should be washing people's feet, because he's the lowest ranked person of the disciples. But either way, I'm not washing their feet. I'm just, I'm just not doing it because that's not me. I'm not the lowest ranked person. So Jesus walks in and everybody's still got dirty feet. And everybody eats dinner and eats their whole meal with dirty feet because it says at the start of the scripture that they'd already finished the meal before Jesus starts washing their feet. But this is actually a lot more awkward than you realize. And the reason why this is a lot more awkward is firstly because of the sandals that they wore. And the roads that they walked on. Their feet were dirty. And I'm not talking about a little bit. I'm like, your kids have been playing rugby in the rain, barefoot, that kind of dirty. 
And it would have been covered, not just a little film. We're talking really, really covered. And it was just gross. Secondly, the reason why this is actually really quite awkward is that they were in a formal meal like this, they would have been sitting at a table known as a triclinium. Now, a triclinium is a low coffee table height table and a U-shape. You didn't have chairs to sit on. So if you've ever seen Da Vinci's painting of The Last Supper, it's a complete and utter lie. He has them sitting up on a high table with proper chairs. No, that's not how they sat. They sat at a low table and they sat on pillows and they kind of just lounged around with their feet sticking out. So you've got these people trying to eat with these dirty, smelly feet that everybody would be able to see. Kind of awkward. And none of the disciples were interested in washing each other's feet. Personally, at the very least, I would have just washed my own. But anyway. Now, I'm sure any one of them would have been glad to wash the feet of Jesus. Yeah? Like, I would have been like, yep, I will wash your feet, Jesus. I am more than willing to. But if the disciples were like that, they would wash Jesus' feet, but then that meant they would have to wash everybody else's. And to be honest, their ego would not allow them to do that, would not allow them to actually say, actually, I'm the lowest of us all. I will wash your feet. So no one's feet got washed. And you have to remember that this passage of Scripture is done in the light of the cross. The shadow of the cross is falling on Jesus. So he probably came in with a completely different mindset. He probably had something else he wanted to do with them because he would know that this is his last moments with them, the last time they were going to meet together. Because as you know, if you know the stories at all, they all vanished. They all deserted him. They all left him, and they scattered until after he was hung on the cross. So he probably had a different plan. And I don't know about, about you guys, but I kind of think maybe he was a bit frustrated when he walked in and they're just all whinging about who's the greatest. And I kind of get it, though. If you think about it, their world in that regard wasn't much different to our world currently. See, their world... They would have known about things like the Olympic Games, might have been the ancient Olympics, but it was still the same thing. We prize as a people, we prize the best. We prize the people who are the smartest, the people who are the strongest, the people who are the bravest, and we celebrate that. And it's, it's quite interesting. I mean, you know, in their day, they had the, um, the Romans had their massive big coliseums with their gladiators. Now, if you were the strongest gladiator, if you were the one who killed everybody else, you were top dog, they set you free and made you a Roman citizen. So we prize that. And even today, we prize being the best. I, and I, I get it. I do. I do not believe we should give out participation certificates. I find that whole thing just ridiculous because you didn't win. And really, second place is just first loser. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, we do. We prize it. And then we hear scriptures that say things like, um, you are the head and not the tail. So there is this inner drive within us to actually succeed and be the best. And we just want to rank everything to make sure that you all know that I'm the best and you're not. That's because we're not living in the garden anymore. If we were in the garden, then we'd just celebrate that everybody was great at something. So you have these disciples, 
and they're thinking about this. And Jesus has walked in, and he knows he's about to go to the cross, and he knows that this is the very last time he's going to have a chance to speak to them like this before everything begins to go south on him. And so he's going to have to do something amazing because they didn't get it. It's been three years. He's been with them for three years. He's been leading them for three years. He's been teaching them for three years. And the whole time he's been showing them that it's not about them and it's about somebody else. And it turns out that his three years have been wasted because they didn't get it. So he kind of thinks to himself, words aren't going to cut this because it's been three years of words and they missed it. The miracles that Jesus had been performing the whole three years of his ministry were about serving other people. The feeding of the 5,000 was because the people needed to be served. They were hungry. When he healed people from their sicknesses, it was because they needed to be served as with him being the doctor to bring healing to that situation. And still, the disciples have missed this whole point. So Jesus realizes that actions are actually going to speak louder than words. And he wanted to teach his very proud, his arguing, egotistical disciples what true humility was. But instead of preaching a message, he showed them. In verses 4 and 5, Jesus rose from supper and laid aside his garment and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. You see, this is a moment of, this would have shocked them. To start with, they wouldn't have known what he was doing. Then there would have been slight confusion. Then there would have actually been horror. Because he should never have done that. Because This is unheard of. The person who is the greatest amongst them, who was an uh, an arguably Jesus, is actually performing the task of the lowest servant. He began to do that. And this is in the light of the fact that Jesus himself is about to go to the cross and perform the greatest act of service for us all. He still took the time out not to think about himself and that he might have needed encouragement, that he might have needed lifting up. He might have needed someone to bolster him for what he was about to face. He looked at his disciples and he realized they had missed what he'd been trying to teach them and what they needed to know. This was an extreme act of servanthood. So according to Jewish laws and traditions, the relationship between the teacher and the disciple was that at no stage could the teacher ever ask a disciple who was ranked lower than them to wash their feet. So it was completely unthinkable that the teacher, the master, would actually then turn around and wash their feet. Just a couple of things I want you to take note of. Jesus rose from supper. He rose from a place of rest and comfort. He rose from a place where he was being rested and felt comfortable. And there are times in our Christian walk where we get to sit and enjoy rest. There are times in our Christian walk where we get to be comfortable. But there also comes a time in your Christian walk where you need to rise up from the table and actually do something. Because you can't just sit at the table. There is, as I said, a season for thinking about things. There is a season for talking about things. And there is most definitely a season for doing something. It's a season of getting involved. 
It's a season of getting involved in the mundane and the boring and the practical and the messy. Because Jesus didn't get up and do something else. He got up and did the worst job that anybody could think of. Sometimes we have to get up and do boring things. Because that's just the way it is. Sometimes we have to get up and we have to help people who we don't like. Sometimes we have to get up and we have to help people who are hurting. And they will not thank you for it. But that's not why you're doing it. The other thing I wanted to point out is that Jesus laid aside his garments. He took off his covering. You see, he didn't suddenly stop being Jesus when he took off his robe. When he took off his covering, he didn't suddenly stop being who he was called to be. When you, as a leader of something, and I, whether you're a pastor like myself, whether you're leading the music team, whether you're leading a hosting team, if you suddenly step out of that role, take off your here to help t-shirt, it doesn't stop you from being the leader of that team. Just like as a parent, it doesn't stop you from being the parent if you suddenly decide to help your kid and make their bed, if they're old enough to do it themselves. It doesn't negate who you are. It doesn't stop who you are being, just because you removed your outer garments. The outer clothing of a person, the outer appearance of a person is actually nothing to do with who you are in the inside person. Your inner man stands as a child of the Most High God. You are a royal priesthood. You don't have to wear priestly robes in the natural to be the priest that Jesus needs, to be the priest that needs to go to the people. Your position isn't removed when you take on the role of a servant. Jesus then took a towel and girded himself. He took his towel and he girded himself because he was ready for work. He took a towel and then he bends down and he gets low and he shows humility. He humbled himself. Here he was, washing the feet of the disciples. These guys, within this 24-hour period, were going to deny him, were going to run from him. They weren't going to stand with him and support while he goes through all the stuff he went through. But still, he got down low on their level so that he could eventually raise them up. We have to be prepared to get ready to work. We have to be prepared to get down and actually do the hard yards. Do the things that are messy. Do the things that you don't want to do. Do the things that you don't like to do. A lot of our Christian life is actually lived out in secret. It's a relationship between you and God. We only see parts of it that we show one another. You see, I don't know how often you read your Bible. That's between you and God. I don't know how often you pray. That's between you and God. I don't know how often you worship or you seek his face. You could be standing in here with your hands raised and thinking about something completely different and not thinking about God because most of your relationship is lived in that secret place. But the part of your relationship with God that is not lived in the secret place is that when you serve. Because that is visible, that is seen. We are called to be his hands and feet. We are called to actually physically do something. This is not a holy huddle. This is not a little community group that we come together and we ignore everything else that we don't want to do or we don't like. We actually have to do something. If you are not doing something, you need to ask yourself why. Because this is a mark of spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is not measured by how long you've been a Christian. It's measured by how closely you follow what he's asked you to do. 
When I was 15, I got saved. I did not grow up in a church, but I got saved at 15. I went to a church. My mom's friend had been staying. She asked me to come. I was grounded. It was a whole other story we won't go into. And um, so I was that bored, and because we didn't have the internet back then, and I didn't have a phone, like there was a landline, um, and there's only like two channels on TV. Um, but I was grounded, so I was that bored that I went. And I got saved, completely saved. So I'm in this church, and I didn't know anybody. Like, no, I didn't know any friends, didn't know anybody. Within a couple of weeks of being in that church, I had signed myself up to the crash roster, both the morning roster and the evening roster. Now, you might be thinking, oh, that's because, you know, teenage girls like kids. I had a two-year-old sister at home. I was 15. I did not like kids. That was not why I did it. The reason why I did it was because I thought to myself, this is a practical way that I could help. Because you know what? I can babysit. I can look after kids. It doesn't actually require any great skill. Just have to, you know, make sure they don't eat something they shouldn't or get into something they shouldn't. Anyone can do that. Then I signed myself up to do ushering. That's what they used to call it. Why? Because I liked, you know, shaking people's hands or handing out communion. Not particularly. But once again, it was something practical that I could actually do. As a 15-year-old, there wasn't a lot that people would let you do, but I could do that. I can straighten chairs. I can hand out newsletters when people walk through the door. That was fine. Then I was super, super excited because a couple of years in, I got to be on the cafe team. Now, you've got to understand, it's not like our cafes. The cafe team that we had was you had to set out all the cups, you had to put the urn on and the tea and the coffee, and then you had to wash and dry by hand 300 cups. Do I like washing and drying dishes? No, I don't. Not at all. But again, it was something practical that I could do to serve other people. The other thing that was a really nice byproduct of it is that I got to talk to people, find out about people. Because you've got to remember, I knew no one in this place. Craig and I used to run the cafe together. Craig and I actually met serving on different teams, not any other way. Like, I got to know, well, actually, he was a bit of a jerk, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> we won't go there. <laughs> Those jobs were boring and mundane, and I wasn't overly thrilled to be doing them, but I did them for the pure reason that, A, they asked. Somebody just said, hey, we need somebody on the, we need people to sign up to, to the crash roster. Great, I'll sign up to the crash roster. Did I have children? No, I did not. I didn't have kids, but I willingly served because it put me in the house of God. I willingly serve because it meant that if I was out here serving, if I was in there serving Christ, there's maybe somebody who is only just starting their journey with God, who maybe didn't even know God, could sit in the service and actually hear what God had to say. And then they could have their life changed. They could meet Jesus like I had. Their life would be changed. They'll change the life of their family. They'll change the life of their community. That's why I did it. Not because I enjoyed children. Like I said, I had a two-year-old sister at home. It was not fun. But it wasn't about me. I distinctly remember this one incident that happened. And they, we had this big fridge. And I can't remember why it was there, but there was this big fridge there. And one person, and I know, and to this day, I still remember the person who did this. They unplugged the fridge to do something for about five minutes. But then they never plugged the fridge back in. It was a freezer, actually. And all the ice cream melted. And who knows what happens to melted ice cream if you leave it for a couple of months. Yeah. And so the church said, we need someone to clean this. 
They actually made an announcement like this. They'd be like, we need someone to clean the freezer. This is what's happened. Now, I knew the person who had done it. That person did not put up their hand to clean their freezer. And so in the end, in three weeks, they were asking someone to clean this freezer. So in the end, I went up to them. At this stage, I must have been about 17 because I think Craig and I just started dating. And I said to them, on Saturday, if someone can bring the freezer out, I'll clean it. Now, I, and I did. I, I gagged. I just about threw up the whole time cleaning the freezer. Why? Because I like cleaning? No, I don't. Purely because it was a practical service. It needed to be done, and because everybody else couldn't be bothered doing it, and no one wanted to do it, and I was like, you know what? This sucks. You know what? Is this going to draw someone close to Jesus? Probably not. But you know what? I was in the house of God serving God, and that is actually all that mattered. It needs to, you need to find the place. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You actually just have to serve. You actually just have to serve. But Trin, you don't understand. I'm not called to work with children. No one's called to work with children. The gifts and the callings that you're given are to be pastors or teachers or prophets. It doesn't actually say they're children's workers. This is a practical thing that you can do. You actually need to just stop excusing your selfishness and pick up your cross and follow Jesus. You know what? If everybody in here signed up on the Christ roster, you probably only have to do it once a year. But people sit here and they say to me, oh, but I'm not going to do it because I haven't been in your church for a year. Like I care. That's your other kid in there. My, I, I take my hat off to my parents. When Craig and I first came here, Steph was two years old. And I couldn't sit in Christ with him. I had to be in here because we were leading the church together. So my mom, who absolutely hates doing Christ, and I mean it, she does not like Christ at all. She's not only fond of little children, unless because they're related to her. She signed up to the Christ roster in my place. And she did that until Seth, she was in Christ on the roster until Seth went into Ignite, or it was called Power Zone in those days. This is what I'm talking about, practical ways that you can serve people in our church, practical ways that you can serve people in our community that have nothing to do with being spiritual. Because it's not about being spiritual. It's about serving, doing the messy thing. It's about washing somebody else's feet because that's what Jesus would have done. Oh, but I'm not gifted to be on the hosting team because I'm not, you know, I'm not overly friendly. Get over yourself. You can shake someone's hand, you can smile, and you can walk them around and show them where Ignite is. And I know this sounds harsh, but I'm kind of over a church full of people who have excuses for why they won't serve in practical ways when every single one of you could. There is not a person in this place who cannot sign up to the Christ roster. There is not a person in this place who cannot sign up to help out at the, uh, with Element. You don't have to have a teenager. You can just give up two hours on a Friday. I'm sorry, I know it sounds harsh, but you know what? I came from a church where everybody did everything. I was on the cleaning roster. We didn't have a cleaner like we do here. You had to vacuum the whole church yourself. And I'm not trying to growl at you, but I think we've fallen into the, the complacency of, if it's not spiritual, I don't need to do it. This church requires practical people to do practical tasks. Because you know why? If you can do it here you're going to be able to help them out there because not all of the people in our community need spiritual help. They do eventually, but to start with, they need to know that you can help them on a practical level. I don't know how to 
to deal with my teenager. Great, let's sit down and have a conversation. I don't know how to budget. Great, let's sit down and have a conversation. My, I'm a solo mum and my card's broken and I don't know what to do about it. Great, let's sit down and talk about who in our church can help you tow it somewhere or is a mechanic that can help you. There has to be a practical application to our faith or what are we doing? What are we doing? What are we doing? See, Jesus is willing to get messy so he could make a difference in people's lives. Are you willing to get messy to make a difference in someone's life? And I'm, I'm not, I, I, I really don't mean to growl and I'm not trying to. I just want to motivate you to see beyond. We have Servolution coming up. When is that? November. We have a Servolution coming up in November. Servolution, if you haven't been in our church, is where we find someone in our community who is not and not a Christian or whatever, and we do it just because we want to bless them. And it's not about getting them saved. Not everything we do has to be have, oh, we're doing this to get someone saved. It's not about that. It's just we're blessing them because God blessed us. You see, the lesson that Jesus has given us is that we have to have the heart to serve. We have to be willing to be involved and to stoop down and do the messy jobs. We have to do it. Not only do we need to do it here in our thing, but we need to be able to do it out in our community. But I wouldn't trust people to do it out in our community if you can't even do it here in the house of God. There are people who need to be served. They need to be shown that they're valued. And it's a really practical thing to do. It has to be practical. If people need help and all you're telling them is, oh, just go to Jesus, they're not going to hear that. But they might stop and have a conversation or a coffee with you after you've helped them practically and say, tell me about Jesus who sent you here. Because at the end of the day, he's the one who's sending you. You've got to remember that it's all about Jesus and it's all about people. Mark chapter 10 verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He showed that to his disciples. It says in Philippians that he took on the form of a servant, and after he had served on the cross, he served them through giving his life. And with that thought, if we are going to have a blessed life, the only way to gain that blessing is through service. And these people here, and I know some of you, so I know some of you have served beyond what others have, and that's awesome. And as I said, it's a sign of maturity. It's a sign of, of how close you are with God. And there are some of you who serve in such amazing areas, and I see what you do, and I think, that is someone close to God. I want our whole entire community to think, this is a church that follows through with what God wants, that goes, this is a church that serves practically, that showed me Jesus. I want people to say that, that church showed me Jesus. Not that church told me about Jesus, but that church showed me Jesus. So let's pray.